Welcome to the third episode of our podcast series on the Duty to Consult Doctrine from the Centre for Constitutional Studies, located on Treaty 6 territory in Edmonton, Alberta. In our previous podcast, we heard from Professor John Burroughs, who talked about Indigenous law and how it relates to the Duty to Consult Doctrine. Today, we talked to Sarah Mainville about what the Duty to Consult means from an Anishinaabe legal perspective. Sarah Mainville is a member of the Anishinaabe Nation in Treaty 3 and a partner at Ultheus Clear Townsend in Toronto. She practices Aboriginal and Indigenous law and Anishinaabe law in particular. She held the position of Chief of Kuchiching First Nation in 2014 and was an advisor to the Okichidakwe of Grand Council Treaty 3. Ms. Mainville, Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to meet you. Miigwech, thank you. It's a pleasure as well. So to begin our conversation, I want to place our topic, Indigenous legal traditions, into context. And uh, to remind our listeners, the duty to consult arises when a Crown action or decision has the potential to adversely affect a Section 35 Aboriginal or Treaty right. So what is Indigenous law and how do Indigenous legal traditions fit into the duty to consult doctrine? So um, if you remember that consultation and accommodation is an interim judicial process, it's a pathway on the road to reconciliation, then you can recognize that Indigenous legal traditions are a separate and equal legal tradition in Canada, which is key and very important. So these are all matters in the arena um, with, with consultation and accommodation, you're in the arena of assertions and claims. So prior to a, a, a point of reconciliation. And I hope we don't exist or coexist in that arena for more than one additional decade in Canada. It's been far too long for the reconciliation of things like important treaties that happened in the Confederation era of Canada. So an example is looking at the act respecting First Nations, Métis, and Inuit children, youth and families. That act uh, is a legislation that recognizes Indigenous child welfare laws. This is after a century of stolen children through residential schools, day schools, and the 60s scoop. How do you recognize this sad history um, and recognize, revitalize, and coordinate jurisdictions for the self-determination by Indigenous peoples for Indigenous peoples, particularly for our children? So... The duty to consult and accommodate regimes forget this pre-existing decision-making authority that Indigenous peoples have always exercised. And for the ease of generalizing, because there's many, many, many Indigenous legal traditions across Canada, it's this access authority that nations had as Europeans began to contact us. So maybe they're earlier called protocols or diplomatic measures, gift giving. This was all a recognition of indigenous legal systems that had to be followed by Europeans in that um, early history of Canada. And so finally, I'd like to mention that this Treaty of Niagara, Treaty of Niagara in 1764, that brought the Royal Proclamation of 1763 to Indigenous peoples for their understanding of this new relationship with Britain. This is something um, that's collectively recognizing and coordinating authority between Indigenous and British law for mutual coexistence. We need to recognize that treaty 
or we are doomed to rely on the doctrine of dis discovery in terra nullius as the only original foothold for British lawmaking power in Canadian sovereignty in Canada. And I don't think we want to be there. I think that we need to uh, follow the truth and reconciliation's calls to actions and, uh, and look to the Treaty of Niagara for a solution. So one aspect of treaty that fascinates me is that the Canadian legal tradition seems to rely heavily on the written document to tell us what rights arise from treaty. So can you tell us about the Anishinaabe perspective and what treaty means from the Anishinaabe legal perspective? Um, sure. So I, I think that um, it's really important to recognize that um, there, there are two approaches uh, that both the, the, the different parties made to treaty making. And um, one was, you know, about finalizing a document, um, which actually is modeled after like English quick claim deeds, right? To finalize a controversy. That's all they were trying to do, right? The, uh, the Euro-Canadian government wanted to, wanted to settle this controversy about whether or not Indigenous peoples owned lands by having these quick claim deeds uh, signed by uh, leadership of Indigenous nations. The other perspective is much more about the future and, um, and about living amongst each other and utilizing hundreds of years of treaty making between Indigenous peoples. So this wonderful model of, of treaty making called the Turo Wampum was shared by the Haudenosaunee peoples. And this was, this was about how they, the Six Nations, made peace amongst themselves to create a confederacy of mutual benefit between themselves. Uh, and they brought that model into uh, to to the British and said this is this is a model of peaceful coexistence. We both coexist on the river of life, us in our canoes, you in your ship, and we don't interfere with each other's affairs. But we we are coexisting, and maybe there'll be mutual assistance. Um, but beyond that, uh, we we just live amongst each other, and uh, we we try as we go through this dispute or go through this river of life, sorry, as we go through this river of life, there are dispute um, resolution measures. So it's very symbolic. Things like there's a, there's a silver chain, a covenant chain between us, and you can pull on that chain if you need assistance or you have a grievance against us and we will come together in a treaty conference and, and, uh, and, and deal with a grief, our grievances on a nation-to-nation -nation basis. And so that, that's why that nation-to-nation -nation language really resonates with peoples, because it's a long understanding of treaty making uh, with, uh, with uh, Europeans, but also with, the, with, the, with ourselves, with Indigenous peoples, amongst Indigenous peoples. That makes a lot of sense. And, and what resonates with me from what you're saying is that treaty is not just about defining who has rights and obligations, but it's an ongoing relationship and, and it's about the whole process of living together. And, uh, and I really appreciate that. I think another aspect too about regarding worldview is when uh, Indigenous peoples talk about treaties, we talk about our, our responsibilities to that treaty, what we're responsible for. Uh, Canadian law talks about rights and that's kind of, that doesn't necessarily, um, it's not really reflective of a nation to nation arrangement, right? So what we hope that the Crown governments would understand is they have an obligation, for example, to ensure that um, Indigenous peoples have 
a right to practice their way of life within the territories uh, that were shared. So in these shared territories, um, it's a bad reflection on Canadians and the honour of the Crown that you don't see, it's not visible that you see Indigenous practices, ceremonies on the land. If those things are still done in secret as they have been forced to be done because of the Indian Act, that's bad. That you know, Canadians should see that as an injustice. You should be actively seeing Indigenous peoples practicing their culture within uh, Crown lands, uh, within their territories, inviting other people to come and join them and to learn about Indigenous customs and traditions. I've always said this to law students, we have law libraries, but they're on our land. There are sacred rocks where you learn teachings. There are sacred areas where you do fast and you learn about Indigenous law. That's our law libraries. And they exist in the lands, probably outside of reserves for the most part. And if you don't see Indigenous people there practicing their customs and traditions, I think that's a bad reflection of about treaty relationships in Canada. And, and now I want to shift focus slightly and, and talk about what this all means in practice, what treaty means and the duty to consult means in practice. And perhaps you can take us through a real or imaginary case where the duty to consult arises. So I'm going to take you through a longer story, and that is with um, Haida Nation, when the, the trial decision and the appeal came, came out in the late 1990s, um, what Treaty 3, when they learned from their legal counsel that this was happening, there was a bit of a celebration because we thought, oh, wow. The Crown is awakening to the fact that they have treaty obligations. That's amazing. There's a need to talk to us as they, as they um, try to develop our shared territory. There's a need to have us participate uh, in these projects that are happening around us. And so, um, you know, these early ideas about impact benefit agreements, for example. So what we did was revitalize what we call um, Manitou Aki and Akinagewin in 1997, it was a long process, involved mostly the elders, but uh, all 26 communities of, of the Grand Council. And we met together, we had elders uh, conferences about lawmaking, and we created a, a written law. And the importance of having a written English law was so that proponents who had this duty to consult in the early Haida decisions, they right, they had proponents had a duty to consult because of the fiduciary duty that was found. Um, uh, because of the land interest, right? The treaty land interest, that's shared treaty land. So there's a fiduciary duty involved. And so we developed this written law and we were talking to proponents, including Bell Canada, who's putting a fiber optic line uh, through the Southern portion of our territory. And so they actually went to ceremony with us. Like they were respecting and recognizing our law. They were transparent about what they were trying to do, what the impacts were to the communities, the specific communities, how certain territories would be alienated from us because of this development. And uh, they did actually have to go into some of the, um, I think, seven of the First Nation communities reserve lands as well. So to get um, that dual authorization from the nation itself through the Grand Council, which is the Grand Council government, as well as to the uh, First Nations, to the um, the chief and councils as well that were there where the lines were um, going through a uh, reserve land. And so that process was all included in that written law about receiving an authorization. And so the uh, Bell Canada did, did uh, receive an authorization through our law. 
and it was a 20 year agreement. Um, and, uh, it was, it was honored and it was, a um, it was, it was based on the lawmaking authority of the grand council. And so that happened, uh, that happened in, uh, just before the Supreme court of Canada, um, so much just changed, changed the, the consultation by being very clear that the proponents, um, didn't have the duty to consult, but it was the crown's duty to consult. I think it would have changed if we would have known that from the outset, it would have changed. Um, it, it, it may have questioned the um, Indigenous lawmaking authority uh, that the Grand Council had if it was clear from the outset that it was only the Crown that had the duty to consult and if there was no fiduciary duty um, involved in, in consultation and accommodation law. So um, it would have changed that, but I think um, for the most part, uh, it is something that is very much alive and, and part of, uh, in, in Treaty 3, part of the First Nations decision-making uh, around um, uh, consultation and accommodation. So the First Nations themselves have defined how uh, that law, that written law works in practice for their own communities and their relationships with the proponents and the Crown. So it sounds like the written law that you produced was recognized and, and it is grounded in Anishinaabe legal traditions. Now I'm wondering, how does the Canadian legal tradition see that written law? So, so that's really interesting because there's sort of been, there's definitely been a lot of dialogue uh, between the Grand Council and Crown government, specifically you know, the different iterations of the provincial um, governments, uh, the, the line ministries like Ministry of Northern Development and Mines and Ministry of Natural Resources, um, the various ministries that had forestry, various ministries that have energy um, authority. And uh, there's always been um, a capacity to try to um, build capacity in the Grand Council to actually um, uh, to try to uh, coordinate that authorization process under the Grand Council's law with uh, a consultation regime that was set up by by the ministry involved. So um, setting up like process agreements, making sure that the Crown is aware that there are direct discussions going on with the proponent um, under both laws. So um, what we the term we use is the administration uh, the harmonization of the administration of our laws. And that was actually funded through government agreements with the, with the two law ministries. So those processes were funded as a recognition, um, uh, not a legal recognition, but sort of a, an administrative practical recognition that these two laws were, were being followed uh, by, by proponents for the most part. What got controversial was where um, um, where some proponents uh, asked governments directly, do I have to follow this law? And, and they wouldn't get a clear answer um, from, from ministry officials, um, uh, but basically getting good practical advice that we should, you should participate. You should participate in these meetings. The Grand Council is very important. Uh, the First Nations are very much allied, aligned with the Grand Council and very much um, uh, see that as a leg legitimate authority in their territory. So it was important. Um, yeah, much more work to do uh, because of course the case law doesn't back this up, right? The case law says nothing about indigenous legal authority. And I think that sort of some promise in the early Haida decisions was lost by the Supreme Court of Canada when they recognize only crown decision-making authority, right? 
no recognition, feeling like there's some sort of, um, there's this big policy gap about um, Indian Act governments not being able to make these proper, proper, um, these proper decisions. And, you know, this is where the awful word veto comes in because um, people don't understand the very sophisticated governing authority that some communities have, and certainly the Anishinaabe Nation uh, with the Grand Council does have a very sophisticated, one of the oldest governments in Turtle Island is the Grand Council. Something you mentioned brings me back to your article uh, that you recently published. Um, yes, that you, that you recently published. And, and I wonder, can you explain the Anishinaabe perspective of what reconciliation tools are available in treaty? how treaty gives rise to these tools for reconciliation. And I wonder if you can also comment on whether the duty to consult doctrine is effective at meeting those objectives. Um, yeah, so um, normally I'm kind of well known as being sort of optimistic about this relationship with Canada, um, but it's taken a few hits over the last year. So um, I would say um, I think that we all want to put consultation and accommodation at the wayside, and we can talk about um, UNDRIPA and Bill C-15 and um, bringing us really into the era of self-determination, where we're talking about our, our own laws. And I mentioned uh, Bill C-92, the Child Welfare Laws Recognition. Um, it's our jurisdiction. It's you know, way back in the 60s, they talked about education. And it's, um, so it's us doing the activities for ourselves. Self-determination is really the solution for success in these very um, complex problems. So uh, consultation and accommodation reflects on colonialism. It reflects on um, the idea that there is a, a, a crown that holds all the cards. And that's really not the case if you understand treaties. So the shared sovereignty um, is, is really important. But also I think Indigenous peoples also have to reflect on the fact that um, we agreed to a relationship with the, the British or Canadians or both um, sometime in, in the... Uh, evolution of Canada and what are our obligations, what are our responsibilities to keep the peace. Um, and it's, I think it's not always questioning the identity of Canada and it's, it's, but, but I think it's reflecting on the fact that, um, you know, in the sense that, you know, we, we coexist, we live amongst each other. We've had relationships despite having a legal adversarial relationship. We have had personal relationships. We are intermarried. We are neighbors. We are, you know, all of these things. Um, that There's so much more work to do. But first and foremost, you have to deal with the fact that there have been an attack on our jurisdiction and an attack on um, our capacity is nations and as governments to take care of ourselves. And I think that's responsibility number one, is to allow our governments to be revitalized through our own laws and through our own customary practices. And um, I think that's, it's, it's really difficult. Like I've, I've worked with, you know, younger lawyers, you've senior lawyers, 
And um, sometimes um, because of our training, we reflect back Canadian law. It's not truly indigenized, right? It's not, um, for me, uh, an understanding that's really important is my understanding of Mini Gozoen. That's my constitutional authority. That's what the creator gave the Anishinaabe when he planted Anishinaabe where we are um, and given, gave us the responsibility um, in our laws uh, that he gave to us and understanding all those things is really important. And so the what I write in English, what I understand in Anishinaabewoen um, uh, is, is really important because it has to reflect back that Indigenous content and not just um, try to look like um, sort of some different flavor of Canadian law. It's all really important. Um, so it's we're in a really important era. Consultation and accommodation is based on um, something that I think is behind us and hopefully something that we're getting out of, like I said, the arena of seeing Indigenous peoples' um, livelihoods and our state of being is merely assertions and claims. We got to get out of the assertions and claims era of our shared experience and um, make a, make a re- arrangements and agreements so that Indigenous peoples are self-determining and uh, living within our own law um, in the ways uh, that we that reflects our cultures, our languages, and our our um, our way of life. And to return to that true nation to nation relationship, essentially. Yeah, I think that's really important. I think reflecting um, that our relationships are th- that of century-old friends, right? I'm I'm quite tired of going with my clients to government officials who don't know who we are. Please, you have the machinery of government to be, you know, you understand who people are from uh, countries around the globe. Why can't you understand who the Indigenous peoples are when they come to meet you? So that sort of era of early indigenous diplomacy, I mean, revitalizing that would be so helpful, revitalizing uh, that nation-to-nation relationship. And that transitions very nicely into the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, or colloquially known as UNDRIP, um, and also Canada's Bill C-15, which seeks to implement UNDRIP. So can you please briefly describe what both of these initiatives are? Sure. Um, so so I, I view uh, the United Nations Declaration as an Indigenous treaty, like a, a global Indigenous treaty, because it was something that was developed over, you know, more than two decades of relationships between, within the international community, of course, between um, state representatives and uh, Indigenous peoples. And so it, it reflects on Indigenous understandings of of uh, self-determination and um, the importance of um, of uh, indigenous ways of life uh, across the globe. And uh, it's a series of negotiations and compromises. Um, so uh, what we have is sort of a, a, a recipe. It's, it's, it's fully baked. Right. So it's not something that you can cherry pick. Oh, I like article. I like article three, but I don't like article 46. It is fully baked. It is a recipe of a relationship 
between states and indigenous peoples across the globe uh, of minimum standards that create can create um, a human rights regime for indigenous peoples. Um, I think Canada has tried to sort of put themselves out there because we have constitutional protection under Section 35 is sort of one of the uh, one of you know one of the um, the nation states that have you know almost gotten to the uh, finishing line of, of these relationships, not even close, maybe at the starting line, right? Section 35 um, has, you know, has a lot more work to do. Um, and I think because of that, and because of, I think, the failures of common law judges to understand treaties for the most part, um, we, we there's definitely a lot more work to do. And that's the role that an act to implement uh, the UN Declaration has in, uh, in transforming the promise of Section 35 into something real, which includes, um, I think for the, for, I think the, the engine within the declaration is self-determination, is how do we affect self-determination for Indigenous peoples inside of state governments? And so that's the recipe that's there. Um, I, I'm critical of the bill. I think the bill could have done more. Again, uh, the bill is re is uh, reflecting on obligations that the federal government has um, in working in partnership with First Nations, but it still imports um, consultation and accommodation language. So there's still the same sort of place setting where um, the Crown government holds all the cards, and uh, and and it's a, it's it's an important reflection on where Canada. You know, if Canada sees their relationship, they also have to sort of um, reach in, reach in and fix the game uh, in, regarding Indigenous peoples. And of course, the scary thing about Indigenous people's rights to self-determination is, you know, it's, it's like mistreating a child. Um, and I don't like using that analogy, but if you mistreat a child all their life um, and you expect them to say, stay close to you once they have an independence, they probably won't. Right. If it's an adversarial relationship, why keep the relationship at all when you have independence? Um, so I think that's the scary thought about um, indigenous self-determination. Um, but I, I, I just see it as a big opportunity again. Um, uh, unfortunately, the narrative around Canada is uh, is taking away indigenous people's um, self-determination rights, our governing rights through the Indian Act. And uh, I think the future narrative should be about um, um, allowing uh, indigenous peoples to uh, govern themselves um, and uh, within their own laws. Um, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to that day where we have less questions about whether or not we can do it, but more questions about how we can do it. You know, the, the conversation is about how do we do this? Um, and I think we're getting out of the um, can we do this kind of era. I think everybody's sort of on the same page. Yes, we can do this. Um, yes, we must do this. How do we do it? And it's definitely important to think about process and to think about um, how to have mutual agreement around process. That's the first thing. Like that gets us the first base on this is, can we all agree on a process uh, regarding a matter? 
And um, I really like the work that my uh, law partner, Renee um, Pelche, did uh, with the environmental assessment. So with, um, with the uh, Federal Environmental Assessment Act work. And so they had a, um, a concept to achieve free prior and informed consent about having agreements with the Indigenous parties uh, of a project and the agreement would reflect um, consent-based decision-making just in the fact that the agreement had to be agreed by the parties, like the, the process agreement. So these, um, so these agreements would have to be made with Indigenous parties in the early engagement section. And again, like if, if, um, if all Indigenous peoples are at the table, some of them will just say, you know, you know as much as I you know, want to be part of this process, I have priorities over here and I have other priorities over here. So just keep me informed of what's happening here and, um, and, and give me enough time uh, to review. And that's, that's, that's the level of engagement I want. I want to be notified. Whereas other parties will say, this is going to impact us. We, we need to be fully informed and so that they have a consent-based decision-making process spelled out how they will participate the crown governments would give them the capacity to participate uh, in that in that process i just i just think that it's just it's it's so prudent to get uh, those most impacted involved in a project um as early on as possible because in that that way you know that's just human relationships right human relationships one-on-one you know treat each other you know the golden rule (laughs) Treat, treat other people how you would want to be treated. And, and that's, uh, um, those are some of the, like there's, there's other stuff out there, like OKT has been working on consent-based decision-making for our clients for a very long time, our law firm. And so there are real practical ways of getting there. Um, from um, one of our clients um, in Ontario has their own permit that they will give to a mining company um, uh, in a process to get there. Um, that's set out uh, by that by by that First Nation. So those are things that I think that resonate because again, it's an act of self determination. It's act of empowerment, and uh, I think you know, like all human beings, we want to be decision makers in our own lives, and that's that's where we're going. And the Declaration helps us get there. Um, uh, and we sort of have to sort of check on where the source and authority of some of these other things that are sort of the naysayers of, um, of keeping us in consultation and accommodation. Like one of the things I think that people, um, when they bring up the veto word, I think it's because um, they have a stereotype of um, Indian act bans as being unsophisticated. You know, they hear all the bad stories about certain things and they, they only remember the bad stories, but there's several, several successful stories about how First Nations and other Indigenous governments are really uh, um, making good decisions for the seven generations ahead of them that um, people can learn from. And so we don't have to stereotype government decision-making by Indigenous peoples as, you know, being um, unsophisticated and uh, not... Um, not being mature decision making and I, I always when I hear that veto word that's what I always think you're stereotyping us um, we can make sophisticated mature decisions um, for the best interest of our communities and that's really a part of indigenous legal tradition that best interests 
is is part and parcel of indigenous legal traditions. So it sounds to me like you're cautiously optimistic that UNDRIP, Bill C-15, and essentially the process of implementation of UNDRIP will actually lead us away from the duty to consult doctrine and towards self-determination. Yeah, I, th I think that the, the consultation and accommodation regime is full of uncertainty. But if you have you have a known process, the regulatory process of a crown government, but you have this sort of shadow process that you don't know what it is, which is the indigenous decision-making process, we're always going to be in uncertainty. But if you have a self-determined process that is transparently outlined by an indigenous government under um, the declaration, the Department of Justice has this great funding out now for um, self-governance, for um, Indigenous lawmaking now that's helping many of our clients, you know, do just that transparently and accountably set out their own processes is written law or written protocols, you know, whatever they, they're calling it, whatever they're comfortable calling it evolving into a self-determining nation. Those things are available and they are, um, you know, seeking the advice of their own lawyers to make sure that it has all those aspects of fairness aspects of transparency, you know, those aspects of, you know, timeliness, efficiency, so that proponents and others will want to, will want to um, participate in them. So it's really important. Uh, legitimate and legal is, is sort of the, the earmarks of, of, of these laws that I've been working on with my clients. joining us in the third episode of our podcast series on the duty to consult doctrine. I'm Liz England here with my colleagues Tesha DeBlanco and Zachary G. Tune in next time for a conversation with Megan Conroy about the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and its domestic implementation in Canada's Bill C-15. It will be available on the Centre for Constitutional Studies website at www.constitutionalstudies.ca. You can also stay current by following the Centre on Twitter. Just search for the Centre for Constitutional Studies.